Andeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahaganaraganathan Vitam Tam Sadivam Sadvaitam Savadutam Varijana Sahitam Krishna Jaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahaganalita Sri Vishakan Vitamscha Magyana Timirandasya Gyanangyana Sharakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Vanchakalpaturubhyascha Kripasindubhyeva Chapatitanam Pavani Bhyo Vaishnavi Bhyo Namo Namaha Namo Mahavadanyaya Krishna Prema Pradayate Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namneva Urutvishe Namaha E Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandho Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kantaradha Kanta Namustate Taptakan Chanagorangi Radhe Brindavanishari Brishabanu Sute Devi Pranamami Haripriye Brindaya Tulasi Deviai Priyayai Keshavasicha Krishna Bhakti Prade Devi Satyavatyai Namunamaha Panchatatvatmakam Krishnam Bhaktarupa Svarupakam Bhaktavatara Bhaktakyam Namami Bhakta Shaktikam Jayashri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Sri Advaita Gradhara Shivasarishi Gaura Bhaktarinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama Hare Rama Eva Kevalam Kalonastieva Nastieva Nastieva Gatiranyatha Welcome everyone to this first part of a series on the Yoga Sutra for devotees. Uh, it's nice, so nice to have uh, uh, Martin as a new interpreter here. I hope I will not speak too quickly for you. If I do, then raise your hand or something and I will see. Uh, Govinda Dasi is also here. This is a great honor for me to have you here. Uh, Mahapriya from Mexico and uh, Sakirati and Shamananda from Sweden. And so nice, so nice to see all of you. And then also uh, our one mysterious person who we know it is, of course, but we can pretend she's a very big mystery here. I'm uh, now at Sri Chaitanya Dham out in the archipelago in Finland. So speaking to you from here. And now also Daneshwara Das also joined us, Haribo. So the topic, and Kanuram Prabhu, Jai Dandavat. The topic for this series is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Now, this is not a text that is a central text for Gaudiya Vaishnavas in any way. We're not speaking here about the Srimad Bhagavatam or the Chaitanya Charitamrita or the Bhagavad Gita or anything like that. We're speaking about the text that is of a marginal importance for Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Nevertheless, it's a text that is useful to know a little bit about. In today's world of preaching, 
because uh, we're of course uh, reaching out to many different types of people with our Krishna consciousness philosophy. In Sri Chaitanya Sangha, we are not very much uh, um, um, accentuated by this desire of, of, of preaching everywhere. This is not something that is very much stressed. Nevertheless, of course, we do that in many different ways. When we meet different people, we tell them about what we are doing when they are asking us. Sometimes we get so uh, enthusiastic about what we are doing that we feel the need to share uh, the path that we are on and to tell others about what we're doing and what we believe in. And one group of people that uh, it is often easy to kind of find some common ground with is people who are uh, somehow connected with the practice of yoga. Now yoga, of course, in today's world can mean many different things. For some people, yoga is just one kind of uh, gymnastics kind of, of Eastern gymnastics, which is uh, something you do to perhaps lose a few kgs or get some help with de-stressing or, or something like that. For others, yoga is something that uh, has some kind of vague spiritual meaning, not only, uh, not only working out or not only moving the body, but also doing something with the mind. And in many cases, people who engage with yoga, they have an inkling that yoga is something more than gymnastics. But many times they are not very sure what that more than gymnastics really is. And this is also something that I think makes yoga popular today because there's nobody really to tell you that in order to do yoga, you need to believe in this, or you need to believe in that, or you need to change your, your worldview in this particular way. Nevertheless, when people do engage in yoga, they quite quickly notice that uh, yoga is not something that affects only your body. It also affects your mind. This is perhaps the first experience people have when they engage in yoga. They notice that they're doing different things with the body. And by doing those things with the body, they are also doing things with the mind. Like uh, when I speak to yoga people, this is one thing I, I like to say that, have you ever had the experience that you went to a yoga class and you were feeling really upset and angry but you had bought your membership card for a month or whatever. So you paid for it already. And you felt, I really don't want to do this, but I need to do it because I paid for it. So, okay, let me do it. And then you do those asanas. And at the end of the yoga class, you realize, wow, was, why was I so upset before? I can hardly remember. So you did something with the body and something happened to the mind. So the body and the mind, this is one thing that yoga and many other things as well can teach you. These two are really tightly interknit, tightly interwoven, the body and the mind. 
You do something with one, it affects the other. When your mind is very agitated and upset and affects the whole body, and when you're very happy, your body is completely relaxed and your mind the same. So the mind and the body, they work together. So when people engage in yoga, whatever yoga we're speaking about, Bikram yoga or Ashtanga yoga or Hatha yoga, any of these kind of modern styles of, of postural yoga or, or modern systems of working with yoga, uh, primarily through asana or through the practice of, of postures and movement, whatever style you engage in, at some point, many people start noticing, wow, this is really doing something to my mind. And at that point, they usually become more curious about the philosophy behind yoga. Because in most places where people go for yoga, there's this idea that there's also a philosophy behind the whole thing. Quite often, it's a little bit vague. People are not so sure what this philosophy is. But it's something deep and it's something important. And if there's one text that yogis in today's world have usually heard of, it is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. So even though this text is not a central text for Gaudiya Vaishnavas, we're going to hear more in this course about how uh, it connects with Gaudiya Vaishnavism and how it doesn't connect with Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Nevertheless, if you're speaking about Gaudiya Vaishnavism to yoga people, it's very useful to know a little bit about this text because we can use it as a kind of bridge to introduce Gaudiya Vaishnavism to people who have some understanding of yoga philosophy. So uh, if you will, we could call it a kind of preaching strategy to know a little bit about the Yoga Sutra so that we then from the Yoga Sutra gradually can introduce people to books such as the Bhagavad Gita, the Srimad Bhagavatam and so on. But knowing something about the Yoga Sutra is not useful only as a kind of preaching strategy. It's also useful because I think having studied this text for several years and taught it as well, I also think that this text has some very interesting and useful things that it can teach us as sadhakas. Not only when we're trying to speak about Gaudiya Vaishnavism to others, but it can also teach us some things that are useful for our own practice, our everyday practice. Uh, whether that is on the yoga mat or whether that is on the japa uh, seat with our japa mala in the hand, it's a book that can be useful for us uh, personally as well even though it doesn't say a single word about Krishna, even though there's no Radha in the text, even though there's no Mahaprabhu, it still can be useful. And it can also be good for us as Gaudiya Vaishnavas to know a little bit about the other darshanas. In traditional Indian philosophy, there are six darshanas. So six uh, ways in which to view the world the Indian word that's usually translated as philosophy is darshana. Darshana, of course, means a viewpoint, a way to see. So when philosophia in, in Greek means the love for truth, 
darshana means uh, a way to see. So we're speaking about different viewpoints, different ways in which to understand the world, different ways in which to understand ourselves. And we will see that not everything that Patanjali says uh, goes like this with Gaudiya Vaishnavism. But nevertheless, seeing what Patanjali says can sometimes make us better understand some things in Gaudiya Vaishnavism and also some things uh, that are different in Gaudiya Vaishnavism become more clear. The father of the comparative study of religions, Max Müller, a German scholar, he used to say that the, one, the person who knows only one religion knows none. In order to know your own religion, you have to know something about other religions as well to, to see what is kind of special in your own religion. What is different? We many times we hear things like, oh, the Vaishnavism is the supreme philosophy in the world. It's the acme of all Vedic knowledge. But unless we know something about other philosophies and other Vedic traditions, this is just empty words. It doesn't mean anything. Why is it the supreme form of Vedic revelation and so on? So for these reasons, I think that even though this is not the central text for us, it can still be useful. So just to repeat, the first one was in order to speak with people who have an interest in, in philosophy uh, through yoga, who have an interest in Indian philosophy through yoga. Secondly, because the text can offer us some uh, insights into our own sadhana or spiritual practice. And thirdly, because this text uh, also shows us how our Gaudiya Vedanta philosophy differs from the other viewpoints to the world within the Indian tradition. So that's kind of my rationale for this series. And again, I offer my Dandavat pranams to our Swami Bhakti um, Pranay, yes, thank you. Thank you for saving me from my blackout. Bhakti Pranay Padmanabh Maharaj, who is so kindly engaging uh, all of us in this, this Tatvavivyaka series. So Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Every darshana, all of these six darshanas, they have their mula or the root text for Vedanta uh, the school of thought that Gaudiya Vaishnavism is primarily connected to that root text is the Brahma Sutra or the Vedanta Sutra uh, for Mimamsa the root text is Jaimini's Mimamsa Sutra similarly there's a Nyaya Sutra, a Vaisheshika Sutra uh, for Samkhya, the root text is not a sutra text, but a karika text, the Samkhya karika by Ishvara Krishna. But also for uh, the yoga school, which is one of these six schools, the root text is a sutra text, yoga sutra by the sage Patanjali. What do we know about this Patanjali? Very little. He's mentioned in... Uh, 
the sacred texts sometimes. Um, and there are some stories about him. And some of these stories are quite fun. We can't always take these kind of stories about sages as, as perhaps historical truths, but they can still be interesting because they can tell us something about how the uh, Indian tradition has viewed these persons. So the story of Patanjali begins uh, uncommonly enough with a yogini, a female yoga practitioner whose name was Gornika. Now Gornika was the most advanced yoga practitioner of her time. There was nobody like her. Uh, she had been engaged in yoga since her childhood. She had never done anything except yoga. And now we're not speaking only about uh, doing uh, yoga on a beach for Instagram or, or yoga on the stand-up paddleboard or something like that and showing off your bikini or anything like that. She was a hardcore yogini. She had never bothered to find a job or a family or anything. She was a brahmacharini who had been doing yoga almost since her birth. Now she was uh, approaching her 100th birthday and she knew that uh, one day or another this body is going to pass away. And that wasn't a problem for her. She was completely unattached to the body. She knew that she had led a good yogi life and her next destination, whether that would be liberation or whatever it would be, would be a good one. She had confidence in that. She wasn't scared of death. And she didn't have any regrets. Except one. Every story, of course, needs to have some dilemma. So Gonika's dilemma was that she knew without being proud or without being self-conceited or anything, she knew that nobody in the world knows as much about yoga as her. But in the particular tradition that she was a member of, in those days, it was considered that uh, ladies can do yoga, but they can't be teachers of yoga, except their own children. They can teach within the family. And this was a problem for Gonika because she knew that she embodies in her so much yoga knowledge that nobody else has. And if all of that would be lost when she dies, that would be a pity for yoga in the world. That's how she was thinking. But she didn't have any children to teach. And she thought, well, I'm almost 100. Maybe it's a little bit late to start to think about things like that. But on the other hand, I never asked the gods for anything in my whole life. Never I asked anything for myself. Not because I wanted to be such a martyr, but just because I never felt the need to ask for anything. So she thought, maybe if I would send up a prayer to the God of gods, who knows what would happen. But she also remembered that it says in the Shastras that you should never go empty-handed in front of a god, a king, or the guru. She didn't have anything. She only owned whatever scraps of clothes she was wearing. 
But then she remembered another thing. In the Shastras, it is said that the water of the Ganges is always pure and holy. So she went down to the banks of the Ganges and she filled her hands, Anjali, with Ganges water. And she was just about to make an offering of this Ganges water back into the Ganges. When things started happening up above in the heavens, Who remembers the name of Lord Vishnu's snake carrier? What is he called? Vasuki? No. Ananta Shesha. Yes, Ananta Shesha. Good. 10 points to Mahapriya Dasi. Ananta, Ananta Shesha. So Ananta, his job is to carry Vishnu. Vishnu, of course, has another carrier as well, Garuda, when he needs to move about. But when he's lying down, then he's lying down on Ananta. And Ananta has his hoods. Like this, he has a thousand hoods above Lord Vishnu, like a canopy. So he's protecting him from below and above. And Ananta started noticing that Vishnu started shaking. And it wasn't just a small shake like this, but a, a proper kind of like like an epileptic fit or something. So Ananta was worried, but like a dutiful servant, he kept Vishnu like this so he didn't fall off. So then after a while, the shaking stopped. And Ananta very humbly, he bowed his thousand heads and he said, Oh, Master, oh, you Lord of all the gods, oh, Mahavishnu, cause of all causes. Please tell me why your lordship was shaking like that. And Vishnu said, Ananta, don't worry. There was nothing dangerous. Uh, I was shaking out of ecstasy. Because in the other side of the universe, Lord Shiva was dancing uh, his Tandavanritya, his special dance. And he was playing on his Tumburu drum. I'm sure you've seen a picture of, of dancing Shiva, Nataraja Shiva. He has a small drum in one of his hands. It looks like a little bit like, like, a, like a, a, what do you call it? Anyway, a kind of, it, 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 it's a small drum. And he plays on it with one finger, like the ting, 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 ting. And when he played on that drum and when he danced, Vishnu thought, wow, that's my bhakta. And how nicely he is dancing, how nicely he's playing. So he went into ecstasy. Now, Ananta Shesha, of course, is an uh, uh, expansion of Balaram. So he's a wonderful, uh, powerful being. But since he's a snake, uh, he suffers from the same problem that other snakes has. That is, he can't hear very well. Snakes don't have any ears. So he couldn't hear that drumming at all. And he was thinking, oh, I would also like to hear that sound of, of Shiva playing the drum. So Lord Vishnu, of course, uh, is omniscient. So he could hear the prayer of Gonika and he could hear the wish of Ananta. 
So he thought, let me fulfill a few wishes at the same time. So he said to Ananta, you go down on earth and be born as the child of Gonika. Study yoga from her. Meaning yoga in a general sense, not just the asanas, but the philosophy and everything. Study it from her. And when you've learned it completely, practice it. Practice it over a long time together with other people. And then when you've learned everything, write a book. And when the book is ready, revise it, make it even better. And when it's ready, again revise it, make it even better. And when you finally come as far as you possibly can with the book, go to Lord Shiva's temple and read the text aloud in front of Shiva's murti. And if the text is good, Shiva will appear from his murti, he will dance, he will play his tumburu drum, and then you can come back to me. Very well, Ananta said. And just down on earth, just when Gonika was pouring back the Ganges water into the river, she heard a blip. And she saw in her hand a small white worm had fallen. And she thought, oh no, my offering is spoiled. So she was taking the worm and throwing it away when the worm, of course, spoke to her. Don't throw me away. I'm your son. And magically from this worm grew a boy whom she gave the name Pata Anjali, fallen into the cupped hands. And this boy, of course, studied yoga from her. Patanjali. Yes, Patanjali. He studied yoga from her. He did all the things uh, Lord Vishnu had asked. He wrote a book called the Yoga Sutra. He read it to Lord Shiva. Shiva liked it, played his drum, and Patanjali disappeared from our vision. So this story is uh, a story about how Patanjali, according to at least one yoga tradition, is a kind of avatar or a kind of, of descent of Ananta Shesha. Uh, as Gaudiya Vaishnavas, we don't hear about this in our scriptures, but uh, many times you can hear this in, in yoga traditions, and it tells us how the yoga tradition has viewed this text, the Yoga Sutra, it's such a wonderful text that it cannot have been written by just anybody. It must have been written by some kind of divine being. So that's something about Patanjali. When he lived, uh, scholars have different opinions, particularly because there are, are at least two books that are connected with uh, an author called Patanjali. There's this book on yoga, Yoga Sutra. And then there's a commentary on Panini's Sanskrit grammar called Mahabhashya, which was also written by a person called Patanjali. But nowadays, most scholars think that these are written by two different Patanjalis. That the Patanjali who wrote the Yoga Sutra probably lived around 350 AD, so 350 after Christ. And that you can determine based on the kind of books that he's using, what kind of philosophies he's engaging with, and then on the other hand, with 
when he was first mentioned by somebody else. So between 350 and 450, somewhere in there in between. Patanjali was clearly a person who was well read. In the Yoga Sutra, we can see that he knew many different traditions, not only uh, these uh, six darshanas that I mentioned before, but he was also well acquainted with various strands of Buddhism. He was also acquainted with Jainism. So he was a person who quite clearly had a, a broad understanding of uh, different spiritual currents in his time that he then tries to kind of summarize and harmonize into one philosophical system that he gives the name of yoga. So uh, that's Patanjali. Then just a little bit about the meaning of the word sutra. If we're going to speak about the Yoga Sutra, we already heard the names of other sutra books, Brahma Sutra, Nyaya Sutra. There's also Bhakti Sutra, two, at least two different Bhakti Sutras. There's Dharma Sutras of different sorts, Kama Sutra, everybody's heard that name at least. So there are many books with this word Sutra in the title. Sutra means thread. And it refers to a particular style of writing. The, the word sutra uh, doesn't say, say anything about the content. It says something about the style of writing. Sutra means thread. And the idea with this word is that it can refer either to a whole book, like Yoga Sutra or Kama Sutra or Brahma Sutra or whatever, but it can also refers, refer to the short, short sentences that this sutra book is made up of. So a sutra book is made up of sutras. It can refer to both the book and to these short sentences. And these sutras in the plural that the book is made up of are, are purposefully written in such a way that the author tries to pack as much information into as little space as possible. So what the author does is that he uh, leaves out anything that's extra. In a sutra text, uh, you'll not find any repetitions, just out the door. There'll be no kind of beautiful descriptions of a night scene or all adjectives, shoo, out the door. Adverbs away. Most verbs even just away. So the author tries to create it as concise, as short, as exact, as kind of systematic as possible. Why? There are a few different reasons. One is that it was fashionable. People thought it was cool to be able to write in this way. And they kind of, some of them even competed with each other who can write in the most concise way. Panini, the grammarian, he's famous for creating a whole meta language for describing grammar and, to, and, and for doing it in as concise a way as possible. The final sutra in Panini's grammar goes like this. 
in Sanskrit. A, A. And it means just as little as it does in English or Spanish. A, A. In normal Sanskrit. But Patanjali Panini, I'm sorry, Panini in his grammar, he's already explained what A means when it's in the beginning of a sentence. He's explained what it means when it's in the end of a sentence. And when you combine the two of them, when you kind of write out the full meaning of that, you get a whole passage of text like that. So a sutra text can be perhaps compared to mathematical language. For example, Shamananda, if I would say A equals three, do you follow me? A equals three. Then if I would say after that, B equals A plus two, are you still following? Hardly. Five. <laughs> <laughs> and then third sentence, C equals A plus B. Eight. So what's C? Seven. Right? No, try again. A is three. Ah, then eight. Yes, eight. But you couldn't know what C was unless you already knew what was B. And you couldn't know what B was unless you already knew A. So all these different sentences, they were built on each other. So a plus B equals C doesn't make any sense unless you already know what's A and B. Similarly, a sutra text is built in the same way. You start from the beginning and then you build one sutra after another. You build the knowledge like this. And uh, traditionally, the way of studying a sutra text was, and sometimes still today is, that you begin by learning the text by heart. In the beginning, the teacher just uh, tells you the sutras and you are supposed to repeat. So this, the teacher says, let us begin. Atha yoga nushasanam. And then the students repeat. Atha yoga nushasanam. Atha yoga nushasanam. Why two times? Because there's always somebody who's a little bit slow in the group who doesn't get it after one time. So say two times, then everybody will follow. Now, of course, we Kali Yuga people, we don't need two times. We might need 20 times. But the idea still is that in the beginning, you just learn it like a parrot by heart. And if you try to ask the teacher something about the meaning, the teacher will just say, shut up. Just say it properly. Yo atha yoga nushasanam, not shashanam, shasanam. So that's just in the beginning, just these kind of technicalities, how to pronounce correctly. But then, when the students have learned the whole text from beginning to end, then the teacher goes back to the beginning and starts opening up the text. What is the meaning of atha? What is the meaning of yoga? What is the meaning of anushasana? And so on. Because at that time, the students already have kind of the framework within them. 
then you just need to kind of open it up. In ancient India and in traditional India, there's a dislike against book learning. There's a fun Sanskrit verse that a friend of mine taught me. Which means knowledge that is in a book or money that you've lent to a friend, if you suddenly need it, that knowledge is not knowledge. That money is not money. So let's say I have 100 euros and I've lent it to Shamananda. It's still my 100, even though Shamananda has it. And he will have to pay it back with big interest eventually. But it doesn't help me very much if I walk down the street and I suddenly need some cash to know that, yeah, Shamananda has 100 euros that belongs to me. Then it's just theory. It's not really money. Similarly, if I'm in a situation in life where I need some knowledge, it doesn't much help me to know that, oh, yeah, I think there's something written about that in that book that I have on my shelf at home. That's not real knowledge. Real knowledge is the knowledge that we carry with us, that we have internalized and that we can draw on like that. So one of the reasons for this style of writing, this sutra style of writing, was that uh, these texts were short and concise and fairly easy to commit to memory so that the student then afterwards can at any moment just draw out the meaning like that. Aha, there's this sutra here who speaks about this or hmm, that one. And when you have all of them in the memory, you can also see how they relate to each other. How one sutra in one place is referring back to another, another one is referring forward and like this. So that's the idea of a sutra text. So all of this has now been an introduction. Why to study the Yoga Sutra? Uh, who was Patanjali? When did he live? What is the Yoga Sutra? What is the, style, what is the meaning of a sutra text? So after all of this uh, introduction, which has taken already 40 minutes, we have a little bit more time to finally get into the text itself. And of course, we have three more times where to, to hear more. And my plan is to, to focus on some parts in the text that are, are useful for the, the things I mentioned before, for, for speaking with people who have some interest in yoga and who maybe know this text for our own practice and also for seeing the differences between the different darshanas. So today I wanted to start with the very beginning of the book. The Yoga Sutra contains about 190 of these sentences, these sutras. Uh, many times these sutras are too difficult, too short to understand uh, on their own. Traditionally, there would have been a teacher who would, would uh, explain the meaning. But traditionally, there's also been written commentaries on the Yoga Sutras. The first one is usually known as the commentary of Vyasa or the Vyasa Bhashya. Modern scholars 
in particular Philip Maas in Austria, who has studied the Yoga Sutra extensively, uh, hold that this commentary that uh, has been called this Vyasa Bhashya was actually written by Patanjali himself. So it's what you call an auto-commentary, an author's own commentary to his text. And it's quite common that sutra authors felt the need to write their own commentary. Nevertheless, uh, what I'm going to speak about uh, in, in this, this uh, group of lectures will be mostly based on uh, how uh, the sutras are understood in this Vyasa commentary, because this commentary, so-called Vyasa commentary, is the basis for all the traditional Sanskrit commentaries. In today's world, of course, there are many modern commentaries as well that are written in Spanish or English or other languages. Uh, I don't know what kind of Spanish editions there are of the Yoga Sutra, but uh, there are many, many uh, good translations into English. And the one that I recommend particularly uh, is uh, the one why, by I put the name in the chat, Edwin Bryant or Advaita Dasa. He's a, a Gaudiya Vaishnava uh, scholar. So if you, if you read English, that's the one I, I recommend. Uh, so about 190 of these short uh, sentences divided up into four chapters. And today I want to say something about the beginning of the first chapter. I mentioned the first sutra to you already, Atha Yoga Anushasana. It means, and now the study of yoga. Very terse, kind of short language like this. There's no, and now that you have reached the human stage of life, and now that your understanding has grown enough, I will give to you the beautiful gift of yoga so that you can live your life to the full extent and finally attain liberation at the end. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, and now the teaching of yoga, dot. So that's the style of the sutra. You leave out everything extra and just focus on the essential. All sutra texts begin with the word atha. Atha in Sanskrit means now, and it's a kind of word that is uh, considered to be auspicious in itself. Uh, so it's it's a good word to begin it begin with, like uh, for example, Om. Uh, so for Mangala, for auspiciousness, it's good to begin with Atha. But Atha also has a philosophical meaning, now. It's good to have done spiritual practices in the past. And this is something that speaks to us, Gaudiya Vaishnavas as well. It's good to have done spiritual practices in the past. Having done practices, having done sadhana, uh, conditions us. It makes us uh, used to it, and that's usually helpful your sadhana you know what you're doing you feels safe it will feels good it's nothing scary and weird so it's useful to have done sadhana before 
it's also useful to plan for the future. But then when this COVID is over, then I will travel to India. Or when I get some money, I will take some time off and I'll really devote myself to studying the scriptures. Or then when the kids are a little bit older, when I have some more free time, I'm really, really going to work on my japa. But the past and the future are from another perspective, both unreal. The past has gone, but the future we cannot know. So the only thing that we really have is the now. That's the point of the word atha from a philosophical perspective. That's the only thing that really exists. And the only time when we can actually do something. So by beginning with this word atha, Patanjali is, is uh, putting the emphasis on the practice here and now. Yoga practice is not something that you did or that you're going to do sometime, maybe tomorrow morning. It's something that can be done exactly at this moment, exactly at this moment. You can live your life according to the principles of yoga just now. You can eat, you can sleep, you can uh, be with your kids, you can work, all the things you're doing, you can do right now. And that's when you need to do that. And this, of course, applies very much to our Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy as well. Don't get lost in the past. What was I in my last life? I need to know it. Or what will happen in the future? Will there be a world war? Is COVID a big conspiracy? These things are distracting us. We should try to stay in the now, Atha. Atha Yoga Anushasana. Now, the study of yoga. Anushasana is the word for study, or it can also mean teaching. It's a heavy word. Shasana means to teach, but it means to teach in a very disciplined way. Almost like teaching with a, with a stick. Now you listen properly. Uh, disciplining. So by using this word, Patanjali is emphasizing that what I'm going to speak about here is a serious thing. Take me seriously. I'm going to speak about something that has an impact not only on uh, the way you are bending to the side when you're doing trikonas an hour or something like that. I'm speaking about important things, things literally of life and death and beyond. The prefix anu in anushasana uh, implies that it's something that is repeated. Anu refers to something that is, is repeated, so a repeated teaching. What Patanjali is, uh, is implying here is that what he's teaching is something that he has received from his own uh, predecessors. He's not just making everything up as he goes, but he's passing on the teaching that he has received, just as we do. We hear from Padmanabh Maharaj, from Guru Maharaj, from Shla Prabhupada, from Shla Bhakti Siddhanta, and so on. And whatever we re receive, we make that part of our own heart, and then we pass it on. So this principle of Guru Parampara, this principle of from up, 
to down gradually, not just taking the knowledge from the Vedic age and throwing it down into the modern world, but taking it down through a tradition of saints. That's something that comes out also here in the first sutra of Patanjali's work. I've uh, spent quite a bit of time with the first sutra just to show you that all of these 190 sutras, they're seemingly simple uh, sentences, and now the teaching of yoga. But within these seemingly simple words, so much has been placed. And what the commentators do is they bring out these meanings. So when you've heard this, now the teaching of yoga, of course, the question that arises is, what do you mean by yoga? There are so many meanings of yoga. Yoga can mean union. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna gives several different definitions of yoga. Yoga means discipline. Yoga means uh, the uh, karma sukaushalam, expertise in action. Yoga means samatva. Yoga means equanimity. Uh, yoga can mean many different things in different traditions. So what does Patanjali himself mean by using the word yoga? Sutra texts, they always begin like this. They first state what is the topic, and then they define it. Like in the Brahma Sutra, Athato Brahma Jigyasa, and then what is Brahman? What is this Brahman that is the topic? Yataha, That from which flows creation, maintenance, and destruction of this world. So similarly now in the second sutra, Patanjali defines what he means by yoga. Yogas chitta vritti nirodhaha. Yoga means the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. We're going to hear more about these terms probably next week. But it's important to realize that what Patanjali is doing here is he's giving a definition of yoga that is different from what we usually hear. Usually we hear that yoga means union. This is not what Patanjali is saying. That's an important point. Patanjali is not defining yoga as union. Patanjali is defining yoga as uh, stillness, as stilling the movements or the fluctuations of the mind. So the word yoga, it can be understood depending on what verbal root you consider to be its origin, it can be understood in different ways. It can be understood as some, some kind of union, uh, or then it can be understood as some kind of concentration, some kind of samadhi, some kind of, of focus of the mind. And Patanjali goes for the second alternative. Yujir samadha. Uh, yoga in the sense of uh, samadhi or concentration. Or uh, we'll speak more about what he means by samadhi later. But let's keep this in mind for now. Just one second. So uh, yoga means stilling the fluctuations of the mind. What happens then? 
does that mean that the state of yoga is like if you take a bottle, uh, a club and <clears throat> beat yourself over the head and then you'll be completely, your mind will be completely still. Or maybe take a bottle of, of, of uh, alcohol and drink it down like this and your mind will similarly be completely empty. Is it some kind of spiritual suicide? No, that's not what Patanjali is after. In the next sutra, he says what the point of this uh, cessation of the fluctuations of the mind is. Then the seer abides in its own self. Then the seer abides in its own self. Then the witness rests in its own self. That could be another translation. So this is a cryptical sutra. What does Patanjali mean by drashtar or the seer? or the witness. This is something we'll have to save for next time. So that's the cliffhanger for today. What does Patanjali mean by the seer and abiding in its own self? So we have a few more minutes. So any questions of, on, on what I've spoken about so far? By the way, I want to say Arivol and Dandavat to everybody who has joined since since we began. There's plenty of persons here, especially I want to give my humble Dandavats to Vaishnav Maharaj, who I can see in the list also have joined us, and so many other devotees as well. Hare Krishna and Dandavats to you all. So any questions? I see here in the chat that there's a version by BKS Iyengar in, in Spanish. Uh, I've read this, the English one. It's a useful one, and it has many nice uh, diagrams also, if you, if you like that kind of thing. But for Vaishnava, I think uh, the most, for a Gaudiya Vaishnava, Iyengar is also from a Vaishnava family, but from a, a Gaudiya Vaishnava, I think the most useful one is the one by, by uh, Edwin Bryant, if you read uh, English. Thank you. Okay, good to know. <clears throat> the the English one is called Light on the Yoga Sutras. Uh, I think that may actually be also the something similar might be the English uh, the Spanish name also because Light on Yoga is by Ayengar is a different book. So <clears throat> probably the 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 name is is uh, is something like that in in Spanish as well. Uh, La Luz de Yoga Sutra or something like that.
Was I speaking uh, too quickly, Martin? Okay, thank you. Okay, if there are, are, of course, if you come to think of any other questions, you can always uh, add them on the, on the uh, uh, forums, uh, Facebook forums later. I will, I will try to answer them. But uh, again, I want to thank you all for participating. Uh, I hope you will have a, a nice week ahead of you. There are many, many exciting lectures in the Stata Vieka series. There's a lecture every every single uh, night here in Finland. I don't know what time it is for you over there, but this is one of the beautiful things that we, we have so many nice lectures. And thanks to the translators, uh, they are available in, in Spanish as well, which is a, a very big and nice seva that you are doing. So thank you, everybody. See you next week. Joy Chatitananda Moitapur Bhakti Norki Jai Joy Vaishnu Shabu Shlatakanatas Babaji Maharaj Ki Jai Jai Guru Ibrahim Shlatakan Ki Jai Joy Vishnu Chakrata Kurki Jai Joy Shinivas Shamanana Narottam Prabhutrai Ki Jai Joy Krishna Das Kaviraj Kusum Maharaj Ki Jai Joy Vyasavatashi Brindavan Dasta Kurma Shai Ki Jai Jai Shirupa Sanatana Bhattaraganata Shi Jeeva Gopala Bhattarasraganan Shurgoshun Ki Jai 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 Radakunda Shamakunda Giri Gwardan Jai Yamunanganga Tulasi Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Jai Jagannath Puradam Ki Jai Jai Jagannath Baladev Subhadra Sudarshana Ki Jai Jai Bhakti Vignavinashana Karashin Shingadev Bhagavan Ki Jai Jai Bhakti Vraparalad Maharaj Ki Jai Jai Char Vaishnava Sambradai Ki Jai Jai Vaishnava Chara Ki Jai Charadam Ki Jai Charveda Ki Jai Grantarachimund Bhagavatam Ki Jai Joy, Sri Chaitanya Sangha Ki Jai. Joy, Anantakudavais Navarinda Ki Jai. Joy, Rishi Patanjali Ki Jai. Joy, Gaur Premanande Hari Hari Bol. Sriman Brigupada Prabhu Ki Jai. Jai. Hari Bol.